not over. Um, last week, Walt began or talked about the birth narrative in the Gospel of Luke. And I have to be uh, candid with you. As we talked about what we should present this week, he said, I would really love for us to cover the birth narrative. I mean, he, last week was Matthew. I'd love for us to cover the birth narrative in Luke. And I said, I'm happy to do that. And he said, I have a wonderful PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> so this truly is classic Walt. I'm just the mouthpiece. Um, there'll be a little of me thrown in, but this is really his scholarship and his work, and so it will be extra special. Um, so last week you talked about the Gospel of Matthew and how Jesus um, was depicted. We, we want to take a look at both of these birth narratives. They both cover two chapters. So Matthew takes two chapters to talk about the birth of Jesus, and so does Luke. And yet when we read the birth stories, we always just get this little snippet about the actual birth. And so it's great to put the entire story into context. What did that mean? What would the hearers have heard in their day? Um, what did it mean culturally? What it did, did it mean politically? What did it mean religiously? And so last week you heard that there was lots of emphasis on Jesus as the Davidic Messiah. And that point just kept being driven home and that he was the answer to the prophecies in Scripture. And he was the hope of the Gentiles as well. So through the lineage, we get that uh, he is the Messiah who comes through the line of David through Joseph. But we also hear, you remember last week in, in Matthew's lineage of Jesus, four women's names are mentioned, which is a real no-no. No women are ever mentioned in uh, genealogies in the, in the, in the Bible. Um, and these four women are controversial, uh, not only because of kind of what could have been a, seemed like a sordid past or, there, or something that's going on odd sexually with them, uh, one, they're women. Two, there's something strange about their sexuality. And three, they're all Gentiles. And so, um, and then it comes to Mary. And so the, we, we see that Jesus is the Davidic Messiah who's come not only for the hope of Israel, but for the hope of the Gentiles as well. And all of this odd mixture of women sets up the story to hear how something strange is going to happen with Mary's sexuality and the, the birth of this child is going to be just as unusual as the birth of these other four women's children. So, um, so now let's move into the Gospel of Luke and see what the story has for us. As we discover again, where, where Luke will start off in asking this question, what child is this? Who is this child to become? Luke's story is actually told in nine different scenes over two chapters. And so usually we hear only two of these. What we usually hear is about the actual birth of Jesus, the, the angels coming to tell Mary that she's going to have a baby, and then the baby's born. And then after that, we hear of the shepherds on the hillside in, in the dark of night. The, sh the angels come and declare that the child has been born and they should go and seek him out. But actually, there's other scenes, and it begins with Zechariah in the temple, and then there in, uh, Zechariah is a priest in the temple who hears that he's going to have a son. Then we have the Annunciation. The angel comes to Mary saying that she's going to have a son. 
The visitation means that Mary uh, visits her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with a child also. Then Mary sings the Magnificat, and we hear, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, we hear really what this child has come for in the song, the Magnificat. We have the birth of John. We have his father, Zachariah's prophecy about who John will be and who Jesus will be. And then we have the birth stories, the shepherds. And then there's something that we usually leave out of the, the birth. The, the real Christmas story gets lost because we've lost oftentimes the prophecies of Simeon and Anna in the temple. So really, the true meaning or the, the, the meaning that first century hearers and of what Christmas was all about um, is sometimes lost because we, we've taken the story and plucked it out of, of the whole story. And so we're going to try to recapture the lost parts of this story today. Another reason that the Christmas story has been lost here is that we no longer understand many of the original aspects of the story. And so modern scholarship through Walt Markham is going to help us recover and understand these aspects of the original message of Christmas. What Luke and Matthew intended for us to hear. You've already heard what Matthew intended, now let's hear what Luke intends and how the people during that first century would have heard these stories when they were first written. So our goal today is not to get lost in reading every word. As a matter of fact, we're really not going to read a lot of the scripture because it's two chapters. We're going to just cover the flow of the story and its message. And I may pick up my Bible and read a little bit of the scripture, but we're not going to have a lot of it in our PowerPoint today. So Luke begins his narrative not with the birth of Jesus, as you saw in our many scenes, but an entire chapter earlier, chapter 1, opens up 80 verses earlier. He begins by setting the story on a Jewish stage. What a surprise. Setting the story on a Jewish stage, and the setting is very specific. Uh, it's during the reign of Herod, uh, who, of course, at that time is the king of the Jews. So it's during the reign of Herod, and the characters listed are a Jewish priest and his wife, and both are very devout, and we learn very Torah observant. Of course, since he's a priest, he would be Torah observant. And both are descended from priestly families. So they're a good church-growing group. They're very, and very Jewish. Um, in chapter 2, so that's all of chapter 1. In chapter 2, Luke is going to pan back and shift to the world stage to the Emperor Caesar Augustus and to the Roman Empire. So we're going to get this emphasis on Israel and, the, and Jewish, um, the Jewish nature of Christ's coming and on what this is going to mean in the Roman Empire. But in chapter 1, Luke begins at the margins, at the edge of the Roman Empire, in, in, in really the, a backwater area of the Roman Empire that no one really ever thought much about. Um, and, he's this, and he begins with people who live on the margins in this backwater in this backwater town and he begins with this otherwise unknown priest named Zechariah and his barren wife who are getting on in years this is a theme that we've heard in the old testament with Abraham and Sarah so we have an unknown priest his barren wife they're getting on in years and the scene opens with Zechariah standing in the temple in Jerusalem 
The crowds are outside waiting for him. He goes in to offer prayers on behalf of the people. And he's standing in the temple at the altar of incense, offering up his prayers. And he's, and he's offering up his prayers for the people, but in his heart, he's also thinking how much he would have loved to have had a son, he and his wife. And so just then, he's offering prayers to the people, and an angel Angels appear all over in Luke. And so the first one comes right here. I love, I love Luke because angels pop in and out everywhere and people break into song. You know, it's like Rodgers and Hammerstein show. So um, everyone's going to start singing here soon. So an angel appears and he announces that God has heard Zechariah's prayers and that God will answer them. And the impossible is going to happen. Even in their old age, Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a child. And Zechariah says to the angel, well, duh, this, this is impossible. There is no way this could happen. And so Zechariah doesn't really believe what's, what is going to happen. And so the angel tells him, well, because you failed to believe what I've told you, I'm going to strike you mute. You're just not going to be able to say anything until after the child is born. And so he is struck mute. Uh, but nevertheless, they're going to have a child. And not only are his prayers and his wife's prayers going to be answered, um, the prayers for a child, but that child is going to play a role in answering God's prayers for the people. And the people's prayers is that they could be delivered from Roman oppression, delivered out from underneath um, the rule of other countries that they've been under for so many centuries. And so the child, the angel tells him, shall be named John. And the child's name is a very powerful message and it means the Lord is gracious. So if you're named John, you know that that's what your name means too. The Lord is gracious. And so the message is clear from this little first section of the story. And that is that God is gracious. And that God hears our prayers. And that God answers prayer. And that God is in control. And that God will answer the prayers, e even prayers that seem impossible God can answer, like the gift of a child to a couple beyond their childbearing years or the cry of the people for deliverance, that God can answer those prayers. And so, um, so Zachariah is struck mute because he fails to believe that this could really happen. And then the angel links the birth of this child to the closing verse and the closing promise of the Old Testament. And the angel says that this child will have the spirit and the power of Elijah, the, the great prophet of the Old Testament, that the child will have the spirit and the power of Elijah, the one who will prepare the way for God's decisive intervention in history. So this child is going to be great, and he's going to prepare the way for one who's going to be even greater. And this child is God's gracious gift going to prepare the way for what God is about to do in history. And then we leave Zechariah and the angel. Zechariah walks out and the people, and he starts hand, making hand signals to people and the people don't understand and they think he must have seen a vision from God because he's been struck mute. So the people know that something special has happened here. But the, she, the scene shifts and the scene shifts 60 miles to the north to this little tiny, again, another backwater village of Nazareth. 
and another part of the story, and I think this is the one we know so well. There's another visit by another angel. This angel is named. The angel Gabriel, of course, brings another impossible message given to a young peasant girl, Mary of Nazareth. And the, and the angel comes to her and says, Greetings, favored one. Greetings, favored one. You are favored. And we're not clicking very well here. <laughs> and the Lord is with you. And that you will conceive and give birth to a son. And this time the angel's message is not an answer to a prayer. Well, it is an answer to a prayer, but it's not obviously an answer to her prayer. Because <laughs> at least it's not an answer to Mary's prayer. Um, because we know that Mary was probably about 14 or 15 years old. And what 14 or 15 year old is praying for a baby? So we know that, that this child is not an answer to Mary's prayer. But it is an, that this child is going to be the answer to the prayers of the people. So this child then, the angel says, you shall bear and conceive a son and you shall name him Jesus. And his name is going to be symbolic also. The Greek word that Luke uses is Iesus, Iesus, Jesus. But in Hebrew, the Aramaic word um, is Yahshua. And does that sound familiar, Joshua, Yahshua? And what did Joshua do for the people in Egypt? He led, them, he led them into the promised land. So Moses led them out. Joshua delivered them and led them into the promised land. And so the, the Hebrew name or the Aramaic name is commonly tra translated as the Lord saved. So Joshua saved the people. But it really means literally the Lord delivers. So just as Joshua was a deliverer, Jesus is going to be it's like this is going to be a new exodus for the people, and Jesus is going to be a deliverer from the oppressive Roman Empire, as in the story of the exodus. So this child is going to be very special, and he will be holy, the angel says, and he will be called Son of God. And then this encloses with Mary making one of the most remarkable statements in the Bible. She, like... Uh, Zechariah asked the question, how can this be, you know, how can this be that I can have a baby? I'm not too old, but I certainly haven't had relations with a man, and so how can this be? Um, but rather than saying it's impossible, the angel says, well, let me tell you how it's going to be. You will be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will conceive by the Holy Spirit, and the son that is born to you will be the son of God. And so Mary takes all of this information in, and she says, let it be. Let it be with me according to your word. And so she is not struck mute. And she then goes on, of course, to bear a son. So Luke begins this story in a really unlikely way, with the announcements of the births of two children, or the announcements that two children will be born. And both of those are brought by angels. One child has a symbolic name, John, God is gracious. And the second child, Jesus, um, is, means that the Lord delivers. So we have two children being born with very symbolic names. And thereby announcing God in, is intending to intervene in the world and to deliver his people. So this child has 
the provocative title, Son of God. And to us, that just sounds, it's, it's what we say every day, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It was a provocative title because it says he is going to have the throne of David. So he's Son of God. He will have the throne of David. And then Luke is going to bring together these two women and these two stories in this climactic scene of the opening act. And it's known as the visitation. So Mary is about, Elizabeth is about six months pregnant. Mary has just found out she's going to have this baby. And we don't know. Could be that she's decided she needs to get out of town, you know. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Um, and so in the scene, we, we all are familiar with the story. It's the scene is very full of symbolism. Um, Mary goes to visit her cousin. And when she walks in the door, uh, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, the uh, John, leaps in Elizabeth's womb, which indicates that he recognizes the unborn child in Mary's womb and recognizes the significance of this child. Um, and so before either of them are born, they recognize each other. Um, so both women then, of course, break out into song. And Elizabeth is the first. And she, her song blesses Mary. Let me see if I can find some of her words here. She sings and she says, this is what the Lord has done for me. When he looked favorably upon me and took away my disgrace. And then she says, As soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. So she offers this blessing to Mary. That Mary would believe that there would be a fulfillment of what God has promised. But it's Mary's song that's really shocking. And it's called, of course, as we know, the Magnificat. In Mary's song, Mary speaks of the type of God who's at work in what is going on in the world. And her, her song is surprisingly very political. She starts off by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. But then she moves on, and we hear some political words in her song. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He lifted up the lowly. He has lifted and he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So these words in this day could even be seen as revolutionary. So she speaks of pulling kings off their thrones and sending the rich away empty. So we shouldn't be surprised that Luke had hinted of this earlier when the angel first spoke to Mary, when he said that this child would be given the throne of David. Someone, so somebody's going to be pulled off thrones, and the lowly are going to be lifted and put on thrones. And it says that he will reign, and his kingdom will have 
no end. And then the angel drops a big bombshell. This child will be called, as we've already heard, the Son of God, which in the Roman world has a very specific meaning. It's a little bit uh, intimidating because in the Roman world, the Son of God was a title used for Caesar, and it had been used for Caesar since 42 B.C. And in the Latin, Son of God is Divi Filius. And we see that on the coins. Divi Caesar is the son, and on the back would be on God. So this title for Caesar, Son of God, was on coins. It was on inscriptions. It's everywhere in the Roman Empire. And now we are calling this child from a backwater town in Palestine the Son of God who's going to topple kings from their thrones. It's a very threatening message. And so the angel's announcement's full of political language, of throne, of uh, reign, of kingdom, of son of God. And so this could sound a little threatening. So, but before we come to the birth of Jesus, we're gonna, we've got two more scenes in, the, in this opening section, and we're going to go back to where the story first began with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the coming of John the Baptist. So we've had the announcement of John and the announcement of Jesus and the visitation. And now we are going to come to the birth of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist is uh, born, and Luke carefully narrates the birth of this child. Um, the whole scene revolves around John's name. Remember, Zachariah's mute, the baby's born, and they, uh, it's time for the baby to be circumcised when that's the, the naming. And so they ask uh, Elizabeth, what's the child to be named? And she says, John. And they said, well, that can't be because Zachariah's sitting there. He can't say anything. And they said, well, that can't be because you don't have any relatives named John. And she said, well, it's, it's John. <laughs> and so then they look at Zachariah, who can't speak, and he gets a paper and a and I get well, whatever you wrote on papyrus with at the time, and he writes, his name shall be John. Um, and so the, this whole scene revolves around his name and why he cannot have any other name. And it's the name that the angel announced. If the angel said so, you, you, you probably should follow that, right? So we give the child the name that the, name that the angel announced, and with other parts of the story, the child's name, again, sends this powerful message and those who would be waiting to hear what the child is going to be named, which would be probably a lot of this village because, because Zacharias, uh, uh, you know, in that area would have been a, a well-respected priest. And so his name has to be John because the child would be living. He's going to be this living prophetic message. He's going to be this walking billboard uh, proclaiming to all that God is faithful, that God hears prayers, and that God will deliver. And so the scene ends with this haunting question that Zechariah, um, after the, the birth of uh, John the Baptist, that the crowd asks, and all who heard these words pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with them. So what will this child become? And the hand of the Lord is clearly on John, but what is God doing? That's the question. What's God up to? 
and we find out the answer comes from Zechariah. Zechariah delivers this great prophecy. I would call it a song. <laughs> he delivers a prophecy that sounds, it's very poetic, uh, but also, again, he tells us clearly what God is up to, that God has heard not only the prayers of Elizabeth and Zechariah, but God has also heard the prayers and the, the cries of the people for deliverance. And just as God heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt for deliverance, God, uh, and God acted to deliver them, God has heard their cries as well. And so once again, God will look with favor upon his people, and uh, again, God is acting in history to deliver them. And this child um, is going to be a part of that, and God is going to raise up a mighty Savior of the house of David. All of this is in Zechariah's prophecy. So God's people are about to be delivered from their enemies, and it says in Zechariah's prophecy, from the hand of those who hate them. From the hand of those who hate them. And this is so important um, that Zechariah repeats the, sp he repeats the message for emphasis. He says it again. Um, that God swore, that this is the same message that God swore to Abraham, that they would be rescued from the hands of their enemies and from those who hated them. And so as with the message to Mary, or as with Mary's song, this language is shockingly political. It's even revolutionary. Um, and it's what, of course, gets Jesus into trouble later down the road. So Mary sang about kings being pulled off their thrones, and Zechariah adds that God is sending a mighty deliverer, one who will deliver his people from their enemies and from those who hate them. And all this is narrated in the six scenes in chapter 1. So all of that happens in six scenes before we finally pick up on what we know as the Christmas story in Luke. So these six scenes are designed to, to shape how we understand what God is doing uh, in the births of John and the birth of Jesus and how we see those births in the context of this larger story. So Luke has very carefully set the stage so that we understand these births and that these births have far-reaching implications beyond a man and woman who desire a child and beyond a young girl who's afraid of having a child. Uh, that they, it has far-reaching worldly implications and political implications. And so these implications are not just religious. So Luke continues the story with the part that we're most familiar with, the sweet part, the birth of Jesus. And Luke begins not at the manger, but by carefully placing the story geopolitically in the larger context of the Roman Empire. And these words, if, if you watch uh, A Charlie Brown Christmas, these are, the, these are the words that Linus starts off saying. It sounds so sweet, but it, it carried a big punch. So this is what we hear every, every, word, every year at Christmas, and it's easy to miss out on what they really mean. But here they starts off, and it says, In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus, that all the world should be registered, or we hear sometimes all the world should be taxed. That's how the story opens, the, the, the Christmas story we're familiar with. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. So what does the birth of Jesus have to do with Roman emperors and imperial decrees and Roman taxes? Well, it has a lot to do. On the surface, it appears that these events 
that Mary and Joseph, having to go back to Bethlehem, right? All the world should be registered. Doesn't matter where, where you live now, you got to come back to Bethlehem uh, to, be, to pay your taxes. So it, it appears that these events are being set in motion by the decrees of Caesar, if this is where you start the story, right? But we started it a chapter ago. So in chapter 1, we know that things are really set in motion because of what God's doing. Because of what God is doing in the lives of an older woman and a younger woman. Two Jewish women. And the two, the geopolitical world, the Roman Empire world, and the lives of these two young women and these, and these young babies are about to collide head on. So we're told in chapter 1 that Joseph is of the house of David, the lineage of the greatest king in Israel. And of course, David, the city of David is Bethlehem. Yeah, Bethlehem, that's where we're going to be born. So we've been told that God is raising up a mighty deliverer from the house of his servant David. And we've been told that the one who will be born will be great and will be called the son of God. And he is going to have that throne. The Lord God is going to give him the throne of his ancestor David, and that kingdom is going to last forever, right? And now we're told that because of a decree by Caesar, they have to return to Bethlehem, which is the family's ancestral home. And what Luke does not tell us, but Matthew does, of course, as we just said, is that this fulfills an Old Testament prophecy from Micah, um, that God's Messiah, King, is going to come from David's hometown. So he says, You've got one king, or Caesar, is about to collide with another king, the Davidic Messiah. And we've got one throne colliding with another, one reign with another, one kingdom with another, and one son of God with another. And all the language of chapter 1 about thrones and kings and toppling suddenly comes into focus when we hear the mention of the word Caesar Augustus. And Mary's haunting words come back. He has scattered the proud. He will lift up the lowly. He will pull kings off their thrones. And none of this is accidental. It lies at the very center of the Christmas story. And so the titles that the Rome use for Caesar are not surprising. Caesar was called Lord. Caesar was called Savior. Caesar was called God. And Caesar was called son of God. And all the very titles that, we, that was used for Caesar are the very titles that Christians ch chose to express their faith in Jesus even before the Gospels were written. If we go all the way back to Luke and the earliest Christian preaching, not Luke, in, in Paul's writings, and the earliest Christian preaching and uh, the letters of Paul, listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. He's addressing the Romans. Paul a servant of Jesus the King, who is declared to be Son of God by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we wonder why Paul was in prison in the Roman Empire. <laughs> so these very titles are given to, to Jesus in the Christmas story in Luke. And, um, and in the midst of the, of the Roman Empire in the first century, Luke now tells us who this alternative king comes to. 
And we already know that, right? He doesn't come to the wealthiest. He doesn't come to the kings first. What we find in Luke in chapter 2 after the birth of Jesus is that in that region there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So God's Messiah King comes not to the halls of power or to the powerful or to the elite or to rulers, but to the shepherds out in the fields. And you all know shepherds um, in that day or probably, probably shepherds today are regarded more highly. Shepherds in that day were the poorest of the poor. They were the very bottom of society uh, because they lived out in the fields. Uh, those who were Jewish could not... Um, go through their ritual cleansing every day, so they were seen as unclean. So even the Jewish people didn't regard them very highly. Um, so they were at the bottom of society. They were poor. They lived on the fringes of society. They were the marginalized. And so God is acting at the edge of the empire to a marginalized people um, through marginalized individuals. So we've got an old barren priest and his wife, we have a peasant child from an obscure village in the hinterlands, out in the, nether, out in the netherworld. And this action is first announced to those at the bottom of society. God is using the most marginalized to bring a message to the most marginalized. And it is to these that the, the Messiah King comes. And the message is, for to you, the poorest of the poor, is born this day in the city of David. But he also says the message is good news to all people. But that news is first announced to you, the poor, in the city of David, a deliverer who is the Messiah, the Lord. And his name, Jesus, God delivers. So this is the point where we usually leave the story. But Luke isn't finished. We have two more people to take a look at very quickly. Uh, he has one more climactic scene that will introduce two remarkable figures. Um, the baby has been born, and the baby has been circumcised and named Jesus. And then it's time for Mary to go back to the temple for her purification. So she and Joseph travel back to Jerusalem. They go to the temple, and when they walk in, they are met by two figures. And the first um, is Simeon. So the, the last impression that the Christmas story will leave us, um, we're going to have the birth of Jesus, and these two people are going to get the last word. Uh, so the first figure, Simeon. So he, the scripture tells us he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He's, he's been uh, a fixture in the temple. He's been looking for the consolation of Israel and the fulfillment of the hopes of the people and the promise of God. And what we hear about Simeon is that once he has seen the child, he, he speaks this prayer to God, and he says, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light 
for re revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so seeing the infant Jesus, he gives his thanks that God has given his salvation and he has seen the salvation, uh, that God is using this child as an instrument of deliverance. But he also says something else. He adds words that sound strange and haunting and words that echo those of Mary's song and of Zechariah's prophecy. And he says, this child is set for the rising and falling of many. The God who pulls kings off thrones, who will send a mighty savior to the house of David to deliver the people from their enemies, now comes in a child who is set for the rising and falling of many. And then the other figure is Anna. Once Zechariah, I'm not Zechariah, but once Simeon has spoken, Anna is an, a prophetess who has been living in the temple since her husband died when she was very young. And she's now, I, I don't know if it says she's in her 80s, but she's old. Um, she was of great age. She never left the temple, but she worshiped there with fasting and prayer. And at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So both she and Simeon recognize who this child is just as the baby John the Baptist in his mother's womb recognized who this child is. She sees this child as the redemption of Israel Come on. <laughs> and the one who's going to deliver Israel from their enemies. So Luke begins with a question and he really leaves us with a question what child is this and we've seen the answer all through the birth narrative all through all nine scenes but it's really a question we have to ask ourselves who is this child to us will this child will we place this child on the throne of our hearts and our lives and will this we allow this child to deliver us from our enemies of sin and death Will we allow this child to be born in us again? And the answer about who is this child is sung, of course, by the angels. And so let us stand and sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Number 240.